You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Thank you, Neil. That was perfect. We're in uh, Jonah 4 today, and uh, Neil basically just wrapped up chapters 1 through 3 for us. So if you wanted to recap or you weren't here, that's exactly what happens in Jonah 1 through 3. Brings, them, brings us right up to where we're going to be in 4, uh, which is the culmination of the book of Jonah. It's the uh, sort of the point of what God was using the prophet Jonah's life for was what he wants to get across to us at the end of chapter 4. You see, at the end of chapter 4, Jonah ends with a question. Do you know that? It ends with a question that never gets answered. And there's a purpose to that. There's a reason why God ends the book of Jonah with a question. We're going to see that today. You're going to see here today what it means to serve a compassionate, loving God. And uh, how can we call him a compassionate, loving God? How can we do that? How can we know that that's who he is? Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, reads like this. Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. Remember that from last week? Jerry read that part. Why is he displeased and angry? Because God forgave the Ninevites, right? So in chapter 3, we learn that. They repent, they cover themselves and their animals in sackcloth, which you got to enjoy that imagery. Um, and they repent, and God forgives them. And so Jonah is angry and displeased. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said would happen when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, a God that is slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, look, take away my life, for it would be better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you really any right to be angry? It would be better for me to die than to live in a world where the Ninevites have redemption. Because what are all the other Jewish brothers going to say when I come back and they know I'm the one responsible for those heathens when they get to heaven? It would be better for me to die. Have you really any right to be angry? So Jonah, he went out and he sat down at a place that was east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, before we go on, you've got to appreciate this. Jonah is not completely convinced that God isn't going to destroy them. So he goes just outside the city a little ways, sets up a nice little camp, you know, outside of the comet destruction zone, and waits for God to smite them. That's what he's doing here. It's not like he's setting up and waiting to see them do amazing things for the Lord. He's still hoping God will kill them all. Then the Lord God provided, while he was out there, a vine. God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, he wanted to die. So he again said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so God this time said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do. I do have a right, he said. 
In fact, I'm angry enough to die. That's how angry I am, God. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about the vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city, Jonah? And the book ends. That's it. Shouldn't I be concerned about that, Jonah? Shouldn't that draw compassion out of me? Shouldn't that draw uh, care for them out of me? That great city. This morning, I want you to see three times in this passage the word compassion shows up. Jonah uses it once. God uses it twice. And here we're talking about the compassion of God. The compassion of God Almighty. Now here in America, the unbeliever, one of the most common um, reasons for not believing in God is that I cannot believe in a God who would allow so much evil. I cannot believe in a God that would allow such horrible things happening, the, the sex trafficking that's going on right now, the attacks on our land, the sickness, the disease, the death, Christian men and women who have put their faith and trust in him and have lost everything. No, no, I can't believe in a God that's that uh, low on compassion. I can't believe in a God that is that unjust, a God that cruel. Where is your justice, Lord? Right? Does this sound familiar? In fact, I've not just heard this from unbelievers. I've heard this from Christians. How can God allow this to happen to me? I've served him. I've loved him. I've followed him. And now I've lost everything that I care about. You know, we tend to think that that's how the world looks at God. We tend to believe that that's how the rest of the world must struggle with this idea that we serve a God who is unjust and mean. But it's actually not, right? There's a story of a pastor uh, in South Korea, and his grandfather uh, was Confucianist. And his grandfather could not believe in the God of the Bible because he could not believe that there was a God with so much compassion and no justice. He says, you mean to tell me that murderers and rapists and thieves will be with me in heaven? Even if they spent their whole life doing these atrocities and ruining the lives of other people, there's a possibility that on their deathbed they repented and gave their life to God and they're going to share heaven with me? No, no. I can't believe in a God that's that compassionate. I can't believe in a God that would be that caring for that kind of a wicked person. You see, in America, we tend to look and say, if anything happens to us, what, what is going on? We're Americans. Doesn't the world know? Don't they know who we are? Nothing bad should happen to Americans. Land of the free. The rest of the world doesn't have that same sort of spoiled attitude about themselves. Not all of the world. There are other parts of the world. But in other parts of the world, they look and they say, I work for everything I have. I've worked to be a good person in my village or my neighborhood. I've worked to uh, uh, provide for my family. I've never broken the laws, the major laws, right? I've never hurt my neighbors. I've never done anything. I've never killed anybody. And I've worshiped this God. I deserve to go and be in a place of eternal happiness, eternal bliss, a heaven, whatever you want to call it. 
But I can't stand a God that would allow somebody who's done all the wrong things in this life to be there with me. So it's not really about whether or not God is compassionate or not. It's, the truth is, every culture will have a reason to hate God. Every culture will have their own individual reason. And sometimes we think our reason is special or we think we're right. But all that really is, is just sort of an ignorant view of what's going on out there. You see, three times we get to see the compassion of God displayed here in chapter 4 of Jonah. The first time is this. It's that his heart is voluntarily attached to us. Do you know that? Do you know that God doesn't have to love us? He's not required to love us? That he voluntarily weeps and mourns over you and I, his creation. That we are what concerns the heart of the Father. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I abandon thee, Israel? Mine heart is turned within me. That's from the book of Hosea. What about Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem on the donkey? Oh, Jerusalem, how often I have, would have gathered my children together, even as a hen gathers her chicken under her wings, but you would not come. God voluntarily puts himself in the place of mourning and grieving on yours and my behalf. If that's not compassion, I don't know what is. Sometimes we believe God is owes us his love. He owes us affection because he created us. Now, there's nothing in his nature that says he owes it, but he gives it anyway. The second thing we see of the Lord's compassion here is he's moved, not just in general, because we're his creation, but he's moved by the condition of the people. It says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? In that great city in which there are 120,000 people. Now, if he just stopped there, that would be a general statement. He's moved because there's a large number of people that don't know him, and so he's going to go ahead and want to, you know, send a prophet there and give them a chance. But it's actually their condition in which it moves the heart of the Father. He then says, they are people, 120,000 there, who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. That's a Hebraic way of saying they have no idea who they are as people, made in my image, who they, that they have spirits, that they, are, that they are mine. They have no idea. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. You see, it's the condition of the people that moves the heart of the Father. And lastly, he forgives readily. And it's important because this is the thing that's really making Jonah angry. It's the part that he knew, which is why the first few, chap first few verses are funny. Because he's like, I knew it. I knew you would be kind to them, God. I knew you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come, remember? He like reminds God, do you remember when I went the other way? And God's like, yeah, I'm the one who sent the fish, moron. Of course I remember you went the other way. Well, that's why. I did it because I knew you'd forgive them. Oh, you're always like that. You're always forgiving people who don't deserve it. <laughs> so Jonah goes with this message of God's going to destroy you. He's going to bring you down. If you don't turn from your violence, and they do, they turn. They repent. But let me ask you something. Do they convert? Have you ever thought of it? Do they convert to Judaism? Do they follow the Mosaic law from that day forward? Do they go and worship the God of Israel from what we know? About, about the city of Nineveh? Do you know? 
No, they don't. They don't convert. They're going to get destroyed, I think, 40 years later. So now, you can really see how this is frustrating because, so all they did was say, we're sorry, Lord, repent and try to stop murdering people. That's it, and and you forgave them. That was good enough. They're not following our ways. We have over 700 laws we follow, God. They're not going to have to follow a single one of them. That's not what? Fair. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we are all American. That's not fair. The cry of the American child. That's not fair. Who told you life was fair? Princess Buttercup. (laughs) So, God, do I still have to get circumcised? Yes, Jonah, you do. But the Ninevites don't? Nope. That's certainly not fair, let me tell you. So I, w- I want to put before you this morning the main, the main thesis of what, where I'm going to go from here. And it's a little bit difficult. And so uh, don't write me off when I say it. Uh, I'm trying to be as kind as I can. But God said it to me this way, and so I'm going to say it to you this way. Uh, be open to the possibility this morning that many of the struggles you are going through right now, many of what you're in, much of what you're enduring is because you have an ignorance to what it means to love the Lord. And you are ignorant to what it means to be loved by God. Okay, don't write me off. Ignorance is a strong word, but I believe it's an applicable word here. You see, we are ignorant to what it means to love him, even though we sing the songs and we speak the words and we write it in our journals, and we are ignorant to what it means to let him love us. We think we know, we think we have an understanding, because we filter our love for him and his love for us through how we choose to love others, don't you? And that's not how God loves. That's not how God loves. In fact, God's love, and this is why Jonah was so upset, because he's like, I don't, I don't, I can't figure you out. I don't get you. How is this okay? You, you, you have destroyed your own people for less than what the Ninevites have done. How is this okay? Doesn't make sense. Well, God's love is like a fire. You've heard this probably, it's been referred to this in the scriptures. It's warm. And it's welcoming, it's life-giving, but it's also dangerous, it's painful, and it's refining. You hear me? The love of God is like fire. It's like fire. It's warmth, it's life-giving, but it's painful and it's dangerous. Here's the thing with gold. You know you refine gold with fire, right? So if you take a chunk of gold out of the side of the mountain or from the earth, and you were to build a fire pit, and then you were to take the gold and set it on a little lawn chair next to the fire pit. How, how long do you think it's going to take for that gold to get refined? Let me help you out. It won't. It's just going to stay there dirty. How do you refine gold? Stick it in the fire. You have to put it in the fire for the value of the gold to be drawn out. Now, on Sunday evenings, our marriage group, we get together and during the cold months, we like to sit around a fire, and when you light the fire up and you start it, it's blazing hot, and it's funny because what, what you'll see us do is we all sort of do this, and then as the fire dies down and we get cold, you move back towards it, and then you light it up again. 
because you can feel the heat is so hot on your knees it hurts your knees. So you sort of back away from it. I want to propose to you this morning that most Christians in listening to the American gospel are living a life like Garth Brooks said, (laughs) which is standing outside the fire. We like to live in a comfortable space. In fact, we don't even like living in the space where we're so close to the fire that our knees burn. We, we, we back up from it and we're like, here, this is better. It's warm. He's inviting. He thinks I'm amazing. You know that? That's the gospel right now being preached. God loves you. He thinks you're amazing. You're special. Your, your poop don't stink. Everything's wonderful. I know. I had to go there. That's the message. No, that's not it. If you want the fire, you're going to have to get in the fire. If you want the true refining nature of a God who is not okay with you playing around in your own cesspool, then you have to allow the fire, the refinement of him to come in and you have to get close enough for that to happen. But that is where we get turned off. That's where we as a nation get turned off to God. We want the warmth and the life without the refining and the purifying. We want to talk about from the stage the warmth and the life of God Almighty, of Jesus Christ, his son, that amazing teacher who came down and talked with the poor and healed the sick, and he was such a swell fellow, and everyone likes him until he started saying he was God, until he started talking about repentance, until he started telling the religious people and the leaders, hey, you guys are living for yourself, and you're selfish and disgusting. Stop it. We don't like that Jesus. Take me back to the Jesus that helps the poor guy. Because I could use that Jesus right now. I'm a poor guy. I could use the Jesus who, who helps the person who needs uh, more work. I could use the Jesus that helps the person who has low self-esteem because I could use some more self-esteem. And so the church preaches that Jesus and we preach that Jesus without understanding that you don't get that Jesus, you don't get fire without its refining and its purifying qualities as well. If you do, you aren't understanding the nature of the love of God. That is why I said what I said earlier. We can think we know what it means to love God, and we can think we know what it means to be loved by God, but I'm telling you, in the American church right now, there is so much hypocrisy and heretical teaching that you may have spent a long time in the church and only been given messages of warmth and life, but nothing to purify you and refine you. And that is dangerous. That's more dangerous than no church at all. Now, I want to say something else hard, if that's okay. I'm going to take a drink of water first because this one's worse than the last one. (laughs) If you haven't left yet, maybe you're intrigued. Maybe you're listening and saying, okay, well... Three times we learn in the text that the word provide shows up. The Lord provided a vine and made it grow. The Lord provided the worm to destroy the vine. And then just to like add insult to injury as if it wasn't going to be hot enough in the Middle East desert without shade, God went ahead and sent an east scorching wind. And so just imagine Jonah's, I just picture him getting beat up by the wind, tears and mud and his snot running down his face. He's like, this is so awful. Where's my vine? I loved my vine. The vine made me so comfortable. And now I wish I was dead because I have no vine in this scorching wind. God provided the vine, the worm, and the wind. 
Is it true then, and this is going to shake some theological foundations, that God brings trouble, discomfort, and disaster into your life in a way of purifying you, in a way that teaches you? Is it true that he authors it? He'll bring it. (laughs) Well, no, he'll use it. How many times have you heard that? God will use the evil of the world. He'll use difficult things to teach me a lesson, but he's not going to bring it. Jonah's just a story about one guy. So Jonah, I mean, uh, Job is just a story about one guy where God let Satan do it. But not in Mark, not in Christians' lives. Friends, I've been taught this from the stage. I can name the pastors. God will not bring anything into your life that is not good. So the death of my child, the death of my spouse, the, lot, the burning down of our house, the loss of whatever you want to go into, just you name it. You mean to tell me that was good? Satan brought that in, and I've had to rely on God to get me out of it. Did he? You sure about that? Because the, what is being preached in the church right now is that God will not bring these painful things into your life. God brings good. He wants good. He wants what's best. His will is what's best for you. Have you heard that? So then why did he do this to Jonah? He brought the worm. He provided the worm. It didn't say a worm came up out of the ground and ate the vine. It didn't say that an east wind happened to blow by. It says he provided each and every single one of those items. Why would God do that? Why would a compassionate, loving, caring God do that? Well, the Bible does teach that evil and death were not part of God's original creative design, right? Those were not part of God's original creative design. So then why would God allow this? Well, let's take a look. Okay, let's take a look. Have you ever been on a sports team and you guys were the best? Maybe you were a championship team. Have you ever been just on a great team where the players get along and the camaraderie is amazing and the coach is amazing and ego is completely suppressed for the sake of the team? You know what I'm talking about? It's incredible to be on a team like that. It's fun to play on a team like that. Or have you ever been part of a company where the owner is amazing? He loves his employees and the morale amongst employees is amazing and people help each other out and again, pride and ego seem to be suppressed and the owner gives back to the community and gives back to his employees and it's just a joy to go to work. You ever been in a company like that? Blake, obviously you have the pastors here, clearly. (laughs) It's amazing, right? Now I want you to imagine something because... Lots of companies and lots of teams have this person on the team. This person's incompetent. They're incompetent. They're lazy. They're arrogant. They're kind of a jerk. And by kind of, I mean they are. And imagine that person. That person gets left a large inheritance of money, and they buy your company. They buy the team. They're the owner. And they go ahead and they put themselves in charge of it. What do you think is going to happen to that team? What do you think is going to happen to that team when that incompetent, lazy, arrogant fool is now running it, is now in charge of it? What's going to happen to that company that used to be led so well when the incompetent fool 
is now in charge of everything going on. Well, my friends, you and I are the incompetent fool. And a long time ago, we said to the owner of this world, you're doing okay, but I think I could run this a little better than you. You're doing a good job, but I think I could take things from here. And it's not just Adam and Eve. Don't sit here and be like, oh, that's an old Bible story. Don't give me that. No, it's you and I today. It's the Christian church today that likes to say that I can come in and I can tell and I can call on the name of God and tell him to heal this person or give this person money or change his decision here. And I can do it because I have the same power he has. And we want to come and we want to pretend in the same way that Adam did that we are on an equal level as God. We just do it in a more deceitful way and we do it through the name of Jesus Christ. And we come and we say, because of Jesus, I have the same power as God. So because I have the same power of God, I can make these decisions. So then I can see things happening and I can get upset when I speak in the name of the Lord and it doesn't happen. When I tell you you're healed in the name of God and it doesn't happen, and I can go, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what's going on. I claimed that you would be healed, but you didn't. This message, this gospel is being spread all over this country. And now it's being farmed out of this country. And it's a gospel a lot, really similar to what Jonah believed in when God sent him to Nineveh. He said, God, we're the righteous people. We're your people. We're the ones who will inherit the kingdom. We're the ones, we're the offsprings of Abraham. We've experienced your miracles and your power. And now you're going to give this same type of grace to these filthy pagans? No. 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 (laughs) He provided the vine, the worm, and the scorching wind. And I'm telling you right now, The word providence, it comes from the word provide, so it means God's providence and the way in which he orders our lives. Will he occasionally provide disasters in your life? Yes, he will. Because he loves you tremendously. He loves you so much that he sees you so near his love, but we sit right on the side of comfort of his love. And we want to stay there. But the problem with staying on this side of comfort with his love is we will not change anything. The vine of his love, the shade, the comfort of his love is over us. And we're not going to move. And so like a good father or a good parent does, he brings some things into our life that we disagree with, that we don't like, that we don't understand And maybe you get angry at him. Maybe you yell at him. Maybe you stop coming to church for a while to teach him a lesson. Think about it as parents. When your kids are young and even as they get into their teens, do you want to be your kid's best friend or their parent? It's tough these days. It's hard to tell these days. Parents are trying to be more their kid's best friend than their parent. Because it sucks to hear your kid, who you love more than anything, look you in the eyes and say, I hate you. I hate who you are. I don't agree with you. You're killing all of my friends and my life and everything. You suck. And that's no fun. So what we do is we say, okay, okay. I don't want you to run off and do drugs and go find the wrong people. So yes, you can, yes, yeah. And we just start saying yes to everything they want. And you see a lot of parents who say, I'm my kid's friend. No, you're not. 
You see, as a good parent, you invest when they're young and you bring trial and you say no, which brings pain in their life. So that way when they get to be an adult, they will be well adjusted and ready for society. And we have a whole group of young adults, unfortunately, right now, whose parents were more friends than they were parents. And they're entering into a society that could care less about their rights or their privilege. And they are shocked by what they're finding out there. Well, God doesn't want you to enter into this world shocked about what you're going to find. And so he says, I love you enough to put you in the fire, son or daughter. I love you enough to make you uncomfortable here because when you are refined, when you are purified of these things, you will be able to take what it is life brings your way. So I will provide the shade and the warmth because I love you that much. I'm close with this. What kind of vines in your life is God wrecking right now? A vine is anything that becomes like an earthly life raft, material goods, relationships, accomplishments, uh, anything that you rely on and rest in more than God. That's a vine. In In and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But the fact that you find your identity and your rest and your hope in it, that is bad. That's not life-giving. That's just going to bring death to you. And so out of kindness to you, God will destroy that vine for you. Now, hear me on this, because I was questioning this after first service. So does that mean I'm being punished because I got sick, or my spouse got sick, or my kids got sick, so I'm being punished for something? Nope. Nope. I never said that. I never said any of this was punished. you believe Jonah was being punished? Do you believe the worm and the east wind was punishment? No. And not everything that happens that's evil in your life is a result of something you've done. Sometimes it is just life. It just happens, and it sucks. But in this case here, God comes to him, and what does he say to him? He says, Jonah, In this entire time that I have asked you to go and speak to the people of Nineveh, 120,000 people. You want to know what the average size city was in that time? 3,000 people. This city had 120,000. It's a mega city. He says, Jonah, you cared more about that vine than you did about 120,000 souls. Jonah, you cared more about a garden that you didn't tend or make grow then you care about the souls of my children. Jonah, you're upset that I am patient with their murderous, thieving actions, and yet you haven't even noticed how patient I've been with your arrogance. You should have died in the sea on your way to Tarshish. You should have died in the belly of the well. You should have died when you proclaimed to these Ninevites that they're going to burn if they don't turn to me. But I've been patient with you time and time again. And Jonah, if you're ever going to understand what it means to love like me, you're going to have to understand what it means to be loved by me. Do you hear me? And I'm telling you today, I realize this message is countercultural and hard to hear and even countercultural in the church. But I'm telling you 
that until your heart breaks for the things of God, you won't understand his love. You won't. No matter how many times you sing about it or read about it, as long as your heart keeps breaking inwardly for the things that affect you, you won't know what it means to be loved by him. And so my call for you this morning is this, get in the fire. Embrace the fire. Understand that his providence is sovereign, it's divine. There is a greater purpose. You see life through a pinhole and we look through it and we try to see what we can see. God sees the whole thing, no limitations. He says, will you trust me? Will you trust me in this? I have good for you. I mean good for you. But you have to trust me in the midst of the refining and the purifying. Is it always easy? No. Is it worth it? Every single time. I invite the band out as we prepare our hearts for communion. And I want to end on this story. You know Pascal? If you're a mathematician here, you know Pascal. If you're a student in school, you know Pascal's Triangle. He's the famous mathematician, philosopher, one of the greatest minds of the 17th century. And he died. When he died, they found sewn into his shirt. He, he hid it by being sewn into his shirt a wrapped up piece of paper, and it was a, an account of an experience he had in 1654, and this is what it said. The year of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past midnight, and then just capital letters, the word fire. Fire. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers, not of the wise, he can be found only in the ways taught in the gospel. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but tonight I have met thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Tears of joy. Do you think Pascal met God of the universe that night? Here it is, the guy given everything the world can offer him in a brilliant mind. A great philosopher, and on that night, he writes something and tucks it away in his clothing so that he will never lose it. And it is the word fire. The fire of God, the love of God came upon me. And in all the philosophy and all the math I have studied, nothing comes close to it. But one thing, the gospel. When I read the gospel of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, that's the fire. And from that fire, joy, joy, tears of joy. If you're in here this morning and you want prayer, you want to come forward and pray, you want to spend time with God, you want to say, God, bring your holy fire down upon me, well then do it. What's stopping you? We are going to break through this lie that has infiltrated the church in America that says that God is just going to keep you right outside here. Once you accept Christianity, in fact, he sort of blocks the fire off from you. And all you do is you get to stay warm in his grace. No, you're going to get, it's going to get hot. And it's going to be difficult. But you will come out the other end of it, the other side of it better. How many people in here, and you can do a show of hands on this one, have gone back to their parents or a teacher or a relative who was incredibly hard on you, but as you got older, you looked back and saw how their influence shaped your life for the better? How many of you have, been, have that influence? Right? 
how much more does our Heavenly Father doing that to you right now? How much more is He shaping you and molding you and loving you? Take this opportunity now to thank Him. Take this opportunity now to say, God, help me to have eyes to see what I've heard today. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts here for communion, the bread, the juice, you said it was your body and your blood. Because the only way I know to accomplish this, Lord, is to look to Jesus on the cross. The only way I know how to lay my life down like this is to see and study and reflect on how he laid his life down. And so that's my challenge to you this morning. If you're sitting here saying, that's great, I hear what you're saying, but how? How do I do that? You do that by looking at Jesus, by seeing what he gave up, by seeing the humility, by seeing the the bringing low of oneself in order to give life to others. You see what broke his heart. It was people who had no food, people who had no health, people who had no money, and mostly people who had no God. This is what broke his heart. Lord, let that break ours. Our vision is to go into this community and love others how you loved us, but we can't do that if we don't know what it means to be loved by you. If we haven't felt that love, Lord, if we've been given a false idea of that love, so God, pour out on this place right now in Jesus' name. Pour out that fire, that love. Let us sense that love, God, by your spirit. That we were worth your son, your only son. Praise the name of Jesus. ahead. We've got three stations of communion. All we ask is that you have a relationship with Christ if you're going to partake. We have three stations up front, three in the back. The one in the back middle has a gluten-free option if you need that. And you can go ahead now, take the cups back to your seat, and you can take them there as you pray, spend time with the Lord, and then we're going to close and worship together, okay?